Uh, I'm going to be reading out of 1 Corinthians 15, verses 1 through 26. If you are able to stand for the reading of God's Word, please do. Uh, If I am too long-winded, feel free to sit down. This is not my primary text this morning, but I think that it's appropriate always to uh, keep at the forefront of our uh, remembrance of the resurrection. Paul, in writing to the believers in Corinth, he says, Moreover, brethren, I declare to you the gospel, which I preached to you, which also you received, and in which you stand, by which also you are saved, if you hold fast that word which I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you, first of all, that which I also received, that Christ died for our sins, according to the Scriptures, and that he was buried, and that he rose again the third day, according to the Scriptures, and that he was seen by Cephas, then by the twelve. After that, he was seen by over 500 brethren at once, of whom the greater part remain to the present, but some have fallen asleep. After that, he was seen by James, then by all the apostles. Then last of all, he was seen by me also, as by one born out of due time. For I am the least of the apostles, who am not worthy to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace toward me was not in vain, but I labored more abundantly than they all, yet not I but the grace of God which was with me. Therefore, whether it was I or they, so we, uh, so we preach and so you believe. <clears throat> now, if Christ is preached that he has been raised from the dead, how do some among you say there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then Christ is not risen. And if Christ is not risen, then our preaching is empty and your faith is also empty. yes. And we are found false witnesses of God because we have testified of God that he raised up Christ whom he did not raise up. If in fact the dead do not rise. For if the dead do not rise, then Christ is not risen. And if Christ is not risen, your faith is futile. You are still in your sins. Then also those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in this life only we have hope in Christ, we are of all men the most pitiable. But now Christ is risen from the dead and has become the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For since by man came death, by man also came the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, even so in Christ all shall be made alive. But each one in his own order, Christ the first fruits, afterwards those who are Christ at his coming. Then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father, when he puts an end to all rule and all authority and power, he must reign till he has put all enemies under his feet. The last enemy that will be destroyed is death. Father, we love you. We thank you, Lord, that you saw in advance that we would fall in rebellion, that we would corrupt the very world that we live in. We would destroy generations because of our sin. And Lord, you made preparations. As Revelation 13, 8 says that Christ was slain before the foundations of the world. But then in time, Father, you sent your Son to bear our sins to Calvary, to pay the penalty for everything that we have done collectively as humans. And then you called him out of the tomb that you might impart to us redemption. We thank you. 
And Lord, I pray that as Paul began, this is the gospel. I pray that as we discuss the matters of the gospel this morning, that those who know you would be encouraged. Lord, those who do not would be brought into saving faith. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, go ahead and be seated. So I decided for uh, some light conversation this morning, some easy theological concepts. Of course, we're going to talk about the resurrection this morning, but in order to get there properly, I wanted to talk about faith imputation, a word that nobody in here uses, uh, justification, which we use in English, but it's not really the same as it's used in Scripture, especially when speaking of the gospel. And then we'll look at how it's related to the resurrection and eternal salvation. Fair enough? If not, you're stuck here anyway. So, faith. The the question regarding faith is an important one because without it, no one can be saved. No one can be saved. And if you think you have faith, or rather, what if you think you have faith and you do not? What if you believe, but you're still an unbeliever? Does that sound ridiculous? What if you believe, but you're still an unbeliever? It's possible. And the scriptures point out many as being a part of that population. There are many people who think they're believers, but according to the biblical definition of faith, they're not. They're, they're still lost. So what is biblical faith? What kind of faith is necessary for salvation? We could say, what is faith need to do or be doing for someone to be saved? What is saving faith? The New Testament typically employs two Greek words when talking about faith or belief. Uh, The one word, of course, follows from the other, the root being pistis and pisteo coming from it. Pistis is usually translated in the English as faith and pisteo as believe. But what does it mean to believe in God or to have faith in Christ for salvation? Does it mean to accept the historical account of Jesus' virgin birth, his sinless life, his atoning death, and his victorious resurrection? If someone believes these things to be historically true, is that sufficient? Is that enough to be saved? Is faith simply believing in the existence of a person or an event. Is that all we're talking about? Hebrews 11 says this, but without faith it is impossible to please him, for he who comes to God must believe that he is, and, and you can insert the word believe, that he is a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. Now our two words for faith are both in the passage. Faith is pistis and believe is pisteo. The author says that we must believe that God is. That is to say, we must believe that God exists. That's prerequisite. But he doesn't stop there. He says we must believe and. We must believe and. We must believe in the existence of God plus. He says we must believe that he is a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. This faith and belief, they are active. They are believing and they are trusting with the action of seeking. So belief and faith are not simply the acknowledgement of something or a passive acceptance of 
reality or, or a fact of history. Faith relies upon something. It's actively placing its trust in someone. <clears throat> Let me ask a couple questions. I'm sure I'll have a division in the audience. Not in order to divide you, I promise. Who in here believes that rock climbing is a thing? Everybody better raise their hand on this one. Okay, yeah. You know, ropes, harnesses, all the pro protective gear. How many of you have actually climbed? <clears throat> there better be a division now. Okay, yeah. Um, maybe you, you've top roped, you've done traditional climbing. Um, so I mean putting the harness on and actually being attached to the rope and then climb a cliff. Raise your hand again if you've done that. Is that it? What a boring audience. I've <clears throat> got to work on this. When I get back, we're going to start you all at top roping. It's, it's safe. Okay, churches typically can get insurance for top roping. Uh, and if a church can get insurance for horseback riding, they should certainly be able to get insurance for top roping, okay? Because horses are kind of a person gets on a horse. Man, I was raised around horses, and I, I can't stand them. Yeah, now there's a division. I, I love to look at horses, but riding them, I just think, there's nothing wrong with my legs, okay? <laughs> it's just so dangerous, those animals. Abby Churchill's looking at me like, coming for you after this. Yeah. <clears throat> uh, better yet, in regard to climbing, who, while climbing, has let go of the rock, put all their weight on the rope, in order just to wring out and rest their hands 50, 60, 70 feet off the ground? Nothing touching the rock, but perhaps your tiptoes as you ring and chalk, and do the rest. Tiptoe on the rock so you don't roll. You see, some of you believe that rock climbing is a thing, but have never <clears throat> climbed, while others have placed all of their trust in the rope, their gear, and the person on belay. You see, this guy is not in any trouble. Does he look like he's concerned? Why not? He trusts that rope. He trusts it absolutely. You see, he's resting. He's chalking. He's enjoying the scenery, and he's getting ready for the next jaunt. Now, he may have fallen. In fact, in sport climbing today, falling is a normal part of the sport. And intentionally, guys fall. Intentionally. They lightly push off, and they just stick their feet out. And their feet will go back into the rock, because they knew they were running out of steam, and they wouldn't be able to get over the next little bit before they could rest on the rock. So what they do is they just kick off. And they do it with absolute confidence. <clears throat> yeah, He's so confident that he's just completely let go. There's a huge difference between those who believe that rock climbing is a thing and those who have climbed, just like there's a huge difference between those who believe in the facts of redemption and those who are trusting God to save them by means of those facts. <clears throat> there's a huge difference. Those who only believe in Jesus' virgin birth, his sinless life, atoning death, and resurrection have a faith, James says, that's really no different than the demons. I know it sounds like such a terrible comparison, but I think that it's, it's effective. James says that you believe there is one God, so you're a monotheist. He says, you do well. Even the demons believe and tremble. Do you guys feel the sarcasm in James's? comment. <clears throat> when you read your Bible, you discover real fast that some of the authors were very sarcastic. He's saying, well, good for you. 
Even the demons believe that, but at least they tremble because of what they know. You see, demons have never doubted the existence of God or the deity of Christ. Before the rebellion of Satan, all of the hosts of heaven worshipped Jesus. Hebrews chapter 1. The the demons were angels at one time. And through rebellion, they were distorted into the creatures they are now. But at one time, they bowed in the presence of Christ. They, They came and went at his bidding. Yeah. Interesting story when the legions of demon, <clears throat> demons, a legion is between three and 6,000, uh, Jesus encountered them in the demoniac of Gadara, and it says that when they came and they, they were confronted by him, that they were terrified, and they began collectively, thousands of them, begging Jesus not to torment them, Luke 8, 26 through 39. You see, they were afraid because of what they knew. But they knew it was thousands of demons versus one Jesus, and they were terrified. You see, they were terrified because they knew that Jesus had the power and the authority to not only banish them to the abyss, which they begged him not to do, and he had the power to, the, the Greek translation or into the English is usually torment, but it's typically understood in Greek as torture. They were terrified of Jesus. So it was their understanding of reality that caused them to behave in a certain way. They believed and so they trembled, James says. Paul said, we believe and therefore we spoke. You see, faith took action. Understanding takes action in some form. The question is, what does your belief cause you to do? What does your belief cause you to do? Knowing what you know about God. People who say they believe in one God and go about their lives without you know, really weighing the consequences of the reality of God are extremely short-sighted. They do well, James says, to believe that. <clears throat> That's good as far as it goes, which is not far. A.T. Robertson, Greek scholar, quips. <laughs> Something much more is necessary. When we address the issue of saving faith, we're talking about a verb in the present tense. We're not talking about a passive acceptance of reality or historical events. Believing in the existence of God and the historical facts of redemption, that's necessary. Amen? Because we're not interested in mythology. We're not interested in fairy tales when it comes to eternal salvation. But the kind of faith we have pertaining to these things, the scriptures say it must be an active reliance upon God. It's not enough to believe in the existence of something. It has to be active. We must be trusting that God will save us by the means that he has provided, by trusting. Believing, interesting enough, is equivalent to doing and obeying. Sometimes it's the same word in the Greek language. The author of Hebrews makes this clear in Hebrews 3. It's hard in the translation to make this a question, but it is. So I'm going to try to make it a question for you. I'm glad I'm not a translator. They have a difficult task. And to whom did he swear that they would not enter his rest, but to those who did not obey? Does that sound like a question? Sorry, you'll have to deal with it. So we see that they could not enter in because of unbelief. The author is referring to the unbelieving and rebellious generation of Israelites during their wandering through the Sinai wilderness. Notice that particular generation had witnessed the ten plagues in Egypt. They witnessed the parting of the Red Sea. They saw it. They witnessed the water that 
gushed out of the rock in the desert. They witnessed the events at Mount Sinai, and yet God says they were still unbelieving. They certainly believed that the events occurred, right? They saw it. They walked through dry ground, through the sea on dry ground, but they're still unbelieving. Uh, They were believers, but they were unbelievers. You see it? They were believers, but they were unbelievers. Why? The text says two things about why they could not enter God's rest. Verse 18 says it was because they did not obey, and verse 19 says it was because of unbelief. Now, the Greek word for did not obey can and often is translated as did not believe. If you have a King James Bible this morning, you notice that it translated it as believed not. So the children of Israel acted, we could say, in unbelieving rebellion or rebellious unbelief. Their faith did not lead to the action of obeying. In Hebrews 12, or I'm sorry, in Hebrews 3 verse 12, the author calls this kind of unbelief an evil thing. We addressed that last week. Those who do not believe in God or trust in God, they're affirming that he is untrustworthy. And to say that God is not good for his word is, is bad. Okay? It's insulting. Uh, the author of Hebrews says it's evil. <clears throat> faith obeys. Faith is active. Faith acts in accord with reality. And as we've said, biblical faith is the act of reliance on God to save by means of the cross. That kind of faith lives in accord with its profession. So keep that in mind as we consider the resurrection this morning. But let's start with imputation. How many of you guys have used the word imputation in the last week? Okay, a student of theology, that doesn't count. Not what we typically use. It's a big word perhaps, but it's one of the most important terms in regard to how God actually saves us. And Paul's use of the term, the word, separates classical evangelical Christianity from every other group out there that calls itself Christian. So let's find it in a text. This is my primary text this morning. Righteousness, which we can't do without, by the way, shall be imputed, credited, accounted, attributed to those who believe in him who raised up Jesus our Lord from the dead, who was delivered up because of our offenses and was raised because of our justification. The first sentence in the text actually begins with, it shall be imputed to us who believe in him. But the context proves that it is a reference to righteousness, the righteousness that is imputed to those who believe, as verse 3, 5, 9, and uh, 22 clearly indicate. It's righteousness that shall be imputed to those who believe. So real quick, a question we want to answer is, how is it that righteousness is imputed? Of course, the answer is in the text. Righteousness is imputed to those who believe on God. The word believe, pistheo, as we've been talking about, is a verb in the present tense. Okay? It's not an acknowledgement of the historical facts of the death and the resurrection of Christ, although acknowledgement is required. It's relying upon those historical facts and what God will do with them, trusting him. I have to say not that he will do it, not or that he is doing it, but that he has actually done it in full. It's an accomplished fact. He has imputed righteousness to the believer. Thank you, sir. He has imputed righteousness to the believer. 
it's for that reason that Paul uh, begins in the next chapter with, therefore, having been justified. The very next verse after Romans 4.25 is, therefore, having been justified. Completed fact. Righteousness has been imputed to the believer. And he says, therefore, we currently have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Romans chapter 5, verse 1. You know what picture comes to mind when I read that? The man dangling from the rope at rest, at peace, even though he could be three pitches off the ground, a couple hundred feet. He's at peace. He has been justified. If you have not studied, devoured, and fallen in love with Romans chapter 3, verse 21, to Romans chapter 5, verse 11, uh, you're ripping yourself off. This line of reasoning that Paul uses to declare the doctrine of justification, acquaint yourself, okay? It's tremendous. So what does it mean to impute? You can see on the screen I've inserted a number of synonyms for the word impute in in regard to righteousness. Uh, The list is not exhaustive. Uh, It can be uh, mean to consider as righteous, to reckon, if you're from the South, as righteous, to think of as righteous, to treat someone as though they were righteous. Let me say quickly what it does not mean because there are various groups out there that have completely defied the Greek definition of the word and then established their theology, their, their, their faith with it. To impute does not mean to impart righteousness to the believer as to infuse it into their nature and character. It does not mean to make someone a righteous person. When you believe in God for justification, for salvation, you do not become a righteous person. How many of you guys noticed that when you repented of sin and trusted in Jesus? If you didn't notice, everybody else did, okay? (laughs) Nothing happened to you by imputation of righteousness. Paul is not saying that you became a righteous person at that moment. Righteousness is imputed to the believer, but not infused. The word impute means to hold to one's account, to hold to one's account, to credit, whether good or bad, whether good or bad. It can be used both ways. We'll use it both ways here in a sec. It means to hold to one's credit or account. So because of Jesus, God did not hold our sin against us, but considered us to be righteous, when in fact, we are, we are not. We are not. How many of you guys were already aware of that? No revelation to you. If it meant to infuse, we would instantly become righteous the moment we believe. But the word, its definition, the rest of Scripture, good reason, contradicts this. It means to hold to one's account. Hold what to our account? <clears throat> righteousness. He imputes righteousness to the believer. He does this by way of justification. In verse 5, listen to this. Paul says that God justifies the ungodly. He unjustifies the ungodly. God does not justify the godly because why? They're a figment of our imagination. They just don't exist. There are none righteous, no, not one. So if God is going to justify anyone, it has to be among the ungodly. But the act of justifying someone is a legal declaration made by a judge, whereby the judge declares that someone is innocent in regard to the law. By justifying them, he imputes 
righteousness to them. He considers them righteous in regard to the law. But this legal declaration does not make an ungodly person a righteous person. It does not change what the person is. What changes is the relationship to the law. So that instead of being treated as guilty, they are considered righteous and treated accordingly. Isn't that nice? So justification, we would define it as an act of God by which he declares the sinner to be righteous in his sight. That's important. But how can he justly justify the ungodly? Well, it's actually by, let me complicate this more, by double imputation. How do you like that? Double imputation. God imputes our sin to Jesus. He imputes our sin to Jesus and then treated him as the guilty party, condemning him at Calvary's cross in order to satisfy the demands of justice that were against us. So the righteous one died for and in the place of the sinner to pay the sinner's penalty. And since then, God has imputed Jesus' righteousness to those who believe, treating them as righteous, forgiving them their sins, and granting them eternal life. God, because of Jesus, does not hold the believer's sin against him because Christ paid our penalty. So let me put double imputation this way. God imputed our sin to Jesus, and he condemned him for it. And then upon trusting in Christ, God imputed the righteousness of Jesus to us, and he rewards us for it. Our sin was exchanged for Jesus' righteousness. But understand, in doing so, Jesus did not become a sinner. He was not contaminated by our sin. He was just treated as the sinner. And of course, we did not become righteous. We were just rewarded as though we were. This double imputation is also implied in 2 Corinthians 5. For he, that's the Father, made him, that's Christ, for he made him who knew no sin. Now the word knew there in the Greek means experiential knowledge. God made Christ who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. That preposition is so important because it's not saying that we become righteous, we just become positionally righteous. He, we go into a position where God can treat us as though we were righteous. Jesus is righteous. But on the cross, for our sake, God considered him to be the sinner, the sinner, punished him accordingly, not for any sin that he committed, but for all the sins that were and ever will be committed. Back to Romans 4. My favorite text in the entire line of reasoning, Paul's defense for this doctrine, he said, blessed or happy is how the word, what it means, happy is the man to whom the Lord shall not impute sin. Now, in the original language, Paul uses a double negative which in Greek emphasizes what is affirmed or denied. And the grammar that's employed indicates that God will never impute sin to the believer's account. For those that like to look it up, it's the aorist subjunctive in the Greek, okay? The grammar employed indicates that God will never impute sin to the believer's account. The NIV actually renders the grammar more accurately in the English. It says, blessed is the one whose sin the Lord will never count against him. Now certainly that is a blessed person. But the original language states it even stronger. 
If we consider the double negative found in the original, it comes out to us this way. Blessed is the one whose sin the Lord will never, no, not ever, count against him. I say just translate it. What do you think? Happy is the one whose sin the Lord will never, no, not ever, count against him. Or we could say, blessed is the one whose sin the Lord will never, no, not ever, hold against him. How many of you at least want to be the blessed man? (laughs) That's blessedness. I want you to notice in the passage that the blessed man is himself a what? He's a sinner, but God will not hold his sin against him because he has imputed the righteousness of Christ to this believing man and treats him accordingly. On what basis does he do this? The question is answered by the latter half of our primary text in verse 25. So as we've said, righteousness shall be imputed to us who believe in him who raised up Jesus our Lord from the dead. Here it is. Who was delivered up because of our offenses and he was raised because of our justification. He was raised, or delivered rather, he was delivered up, speaking of the cross, for my offenses, for yours, or because of them. Now the word delivered was used to describe an accursed person, a person accused, and they'd been delivered over to justice to be incarcerated or condemned. They were delivered over, okay? A Greek scholar, Kenneth Weiss, says that it speaks of the judicial act of God the Father, delivering God the Son to the, ju- to, ju- to the justice that required the payment of the penalty for human sin. See, he was delivered up because of me, my offenses, my transgressions. And it was a matter of divine justice, not because of what Christ had done, but because of us, he was condemned. But Jesus didn't just atone for our sins on Calvary's cross. Three days later... What happened? That was really weak. (laughs) He was risen from the dead. He was risen. He was raised to life again, the text says, because of our justification. Now listen, that is to say that all the benefits of Calvary, of Jesus' atoning death, were distributed because he was raised from the dead. You see, the resurrection proves that God accepted Jesus' payment for sin. It proves that Jesus was a worthy sacrifice for sinners. And because he indeed paid our penalty in full, his father called him out of the grave. And listen, when Jesus came out of the grave, all of his benefits came with him. It wasn't until he busted out of that thing that God made available to man the benefits of redemption. By means of the resurrected Savior, God grants forgiveness to the sinner, justification for the ungodly, eternal life to the perishing, adoption to the spiritual orphan, reconciliation to the condemned, hope for the desperate, and life to those who are spiritually dead. As Paul said in 1 Corinthians 15, if Jesus did not rise from the dead, there would be no benefits to grant There would just be a dead body in the tomb, and the sinner would be left in his sin without any hope. But he rose, and he lives forevermore to ensure that everyone who puts their trust in him will be saved. You guys will be saved. John says, I have written this so that you might know that you have eternal life. Look, you can wait for it all you want. I ain't. I got it right now, okay, that you might know that you have it. 
So back to our discussion about biblical saving faith. Faith is trusting God with what he has said and with what he has done through Christ Jesus. It's trusting him. It's taking him at his word. He delivered Jesus up to be condemned for what we have done. And then he raised Jesus up from among the dead, not only to prove that he was a worthy sacrifice, but to grant the benefits of the cross to the believer. Again, it's not to those who simply believe in the historical facts of Jesus' death and his resurrection, but to those who are trusting God to save them by means of Christ's death and resurrection. Now, I want to say this to you. I think it's important if I was to give you my testimony. I know that God has justified me from all my sin. I know that he's granted me forgiveness and eternal life. He's given it to me. And it's not because of any good thing that I have done. It's certainly not because I'm righteous enough for it, but purely because I have put my trust in the Son of God who gave his life for my sin. He granted me life and forgiveness on the grounds of what Jesus did in his atoning death and his resurrection. So it is upon Christ that I have placed my trust and I have surrendered my life to his lordship. We said that faith has feet. Faith does something in response to reality. It's because I have put my trust in him that I live to obey him. Do you understand? If you do that, you will be saved. Not on the day of judgment only. You'll be saved today. As Paul says, today is the day of salvation. He says that if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Now listen, I know that people have used this as some kind of incantation, some kind of formula. Uh, If I just say these words, then poof. That's not what that means. Especially in the ancient world, when you confess someone to be Lord, that was a huge deal. It means to that you, your life belongs to them, that you come and go at their bidding, that you obey them. So when Paul says to confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, it means to give your life over to him, that he would lord over every detail of your life. So yes, we do trust in the facts of redemption. Jesus was born of a virgin. He lived a sinless life. He died a vicarious, substitutional death. And he rose again the third day. We believe that. It's a historical fact. But we are relying upon him to save us based upon what he has done. And in our appreciation, we surrender, we yield our lives to him. Amen. Go ahead and stand up. We'll pray. I look forward to seeing you again in five weeks. I'll send you all pictures along the way of how nice the weather is. Let's pray and then we'll continue to worship. Well, Father, of all people, of all persons, you know that we live in a culture of easy believism. There are many who confess your name, but Lord, they they live on the outside of your grace. They They do not trust. They're not relying upon you, and therefore, the righteousness needed for salvation has not been imputed to them. And justice will require that you treat them according to their sin. And what a tragic day that will be when they stand before you. Lord, I pray that if anyone has come here this morning, and Lord, they realize that they stand outside of your saving grace, Lord, I pray that by revelation of your spirit that this was, would dawn upon them. And they would cry out to you in real faith. And they would trust you, Lord. And Lord, they would experience the forgiveness of sin, the cleansing of their conscience. And Lord, they would realize that, that you have imputed the righteousness of Christ to them. 
So the day of judgment, they'll stand before you innocent and ready to receive the reward. So Lord, speak to their hearts. Encourage them, Lord, and bring them into the body of Christ. Lord, I thank you for my church family. And I just pray that um, you would encourage their hearts in, record, in, in regard to the truth. And Lord, I pray that you'd lavish your grace upon them. And as Paul said, we, we believed and therefore we spoke. Help us to not, Lord, keep quiet about this treasure that we have. We are the blessed person of Romans chapter 4, verse 8. Help us to spread that blessedness around. In Jesus' name, amen. All right. Love you guys.